Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Okay, this is uh, this is a cosmic perspective today on the podcast. David Perrin, regular contributor to the podcast, he is going to talk about how meditation helps us reckon with the big questions. Big questions. You you you've got them. What what what's going on? Who am I? Why am I here? What's this all about? Are there answers? I don't know. Let's let's listen to the podcast and find out. David Perrin is a licensed creative arts therapist, registered drama therapist. He is the co-founder of Mindful Ed, a schools-based mindfulness program. And uh, this was a talk he gave at our weekly Dharma gathering earlier this month. Visit our website, ny.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Okay, Shambhala Training Weekend 1. That's our introductory weekend meditation program. We offer it uh, several times a year. It's coming up again next month. And it's being led by David Perrin, the guy you're about to hear. Uh, Click the link on the homepage at nmy.shambhala.org for more information and to register. Again, that's Shambhala Training Weekend 1. So, David, what's on your mind? We live in a time where the buzzword of mindfulness is... Um, ubiquitous. It's all around us. And it's often, uh, whether we see it on the cover of a magazine when we're waiting at, in line at the grocery store or at uh, Barnes & Noble, if you dare to go to the magazine section of Barnes & Noble, which I'm intimidated by, but um, wherever you, w- when we see it in the headlines, Time Magazine, whatever, it's, it, there's often this notion of it's kind of like calling to us as if there's some sort of promise of something we're going to get out of the mindfulness practice. Do you ever have that feeling, seeing mindfulness, hearing reports about it, that, that there's kind of like uh, one of the teachers here you know well, Shastri Ethan Nickturn, talks about it as being symptomatic. That basically it's going to address, it's, there's, there's sort of like this latent or hidden promise that it's going to address a particular symptom in our life. It's going to relieve anxiety, or it's going to alleviate depression. Or maybe you see ads for Headspace on the subway that, sit, that talk about how, what a great person you're going to be if you listen to their app and follow their uh, uh, mindfulness activities, that you're going to be better, smarter, faster, and you're going to have more memory and all the rest of that. So it's the you know in some ways we you can uh, say that these things on, on a scientific level have been shown to be true. It's not that um, it doesn't uh, help to uh, decrease negative symptoms or um, enhance uh, qualities that are helpful for us. But do you know this place? And one of the reasons why I kept coming around here, when I started coming here almost 20 years ago, why I kept coming around here, and that was a time when mindfulness wasn't a buzzword the way it is today. There's a bigger view here. There's a bigger notion that, that's happening that's going along with some of what you all were saying earlier about connecting to what's important to each of us. 
And that's actually why I had you at the end of the meditation. Was anyone able to raise the gaze a little bit? Yeah? Was it kind of intimidating for any of us? Yeah, kind of like, okay, I'm look, I'm right here. I, I don't know if I can go up another few feet. I'm fine. I'm very comfortable right here. So that is a little bit the, the, sometimes what happens is we get comfortable with a particular perspective on the world and we just sort of stay in our lane. Do you know it's like if they could, if, if someone could track our cell phones, they'd see that our cell phones just basically go from point A to point B to point C, put them and back home. And we do that day in and day out. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what happens is that we become a little bit accustomed to just sort of going along with what is going to create the least disturbance. Do you know that feeling? There's a book, The, the Sacred Path of the Warrior, which is considered one of the seminal um, books that was written by Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, as the Shambhala teachings were being um, shared in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And so he wrote this book that really was a series of talks that he ha had given, kind of, you know, talking about how Shambhala, uh, in some ways, were teachings that took the, the depth and wisdom of Buddhism and combined it as uh, Susie was saying earlier, with other wisdom traditions and, and sort of presenting it in this very much for our age and our time um, as the Shambhala teachings. And in the very, the very first, there's, it starts with a poem, and the very first line of that poem is not, if you want to be better at your job, follow your breath. <laughs> follow your breath. He didn't say that. Does anyone know what he said? Be super impressed if you have memorized this poem. <laughs> he said, from the great cosmic mirror, without beginning and without end, human society became manifest. <laughs> great cosmic mirror, what? So from the moment that he was introducing to us what this is that we're doing, it was immediately a, like, gazing at the stars like our ancestors used to do wasn't when there wasn't so much light pollution. And what each, hopefully, has anyone here gotten to gaze at the stars in a really amazing place somewhere in the world? So this is like a solar system and beyond approach to mindfulness. And really, if nothing else, I mean, in my estimation, if nothing else, what basically that, that he was introducing or he was leading with is the context or the ground or why we're doing this practice is why are we here and how are we here? Why are we here? This is this, 
This is what's so special about being able to come to a place like this and take an hour, take an hour and a half out of our week to ask ourselves that question. Because out there, not so many people interested in you walking slowly down the street looking up at the sky. When's the last time you did that in New York City? Not often because you're afraid that you're going to get run over by someone who's probably me checking their phone on their way to Trader Joe's. So these spaces exist less and less in our world because we found a way, even in our private spaces, which used to be maybe these domains where even just out of boredom, we'd look out the window and it just might cross our mind, oh, gee, why am I here? But now it's all too easy, it's all too easy to pick the device up and find something to look at. So it might, it's maybe interesting to think about that um, mindfulness is about sitting in this question of why am I here and how did I come to be? But the key point in doing that is that not that we immediately go to looking for an answer for that. So I don't have the answer for why we're here. And even though we probably could get some pretty creative answers here tonight, none of you have the answer to that question. That is going to be the answer that someone walks out of this room and says, I'm good. That's going to last me for maybe till the end. None of us. And so the paradox, particularly of our age, this is one of the great paradoxes of our age that I find myself in, is that on the one hand, we are um, constantly suspicious. Some of you out there are sitting there going like, what is this guy talking about? And how is it helpful or even relevant to me? Suspicion is just, you know, in this day and age we live in and who we're listening to, who has the airwaves, it is just ingrained in us this really potent suspicion. But the paradox is that on the other hand, there's some part of us, and many of us were raised in traditions, particularly religious traditions, that, were, um, that basically were toting or promising the answer or the explanation that made the next thing make sense. Whatever happens to us, because of that, um, often had to do with a sense of a, a, a divine being that had um, deigned life on us, that because of that relationship that was set up, that we are secretly harboring um, the mm, hope that someone will come along and give us that explanation that will make everything make sense as things seem to make less and less sense. 
And it doesn't even necessarily have to be the divine being. It doesn't even have to be the religious explanation. It could be the scientific explanation. It could be the evolutionary explanation. That there's some explanation, and that's why the explanations are offered every week in science journals, in interviews, in podcasts. Everyone is um, sort of circling around that, and we're all listening because we're hoping to hear not just inspiration, but something that goes a little bit beyond inspiration. There's a very, in, in, uh, in Chogim Trumpa's writings, there's a very interesting analogy that he makes to um, this notion of the Big Bang. So if we, if we go to this cosmic place of like, that it all started with the Big Bang, that that somehow explains things. Let's take a little different shift on the Big Bang. So imagine that you're standing in a wide open space, kind of like that space that if you lifted your gaze, you could see in all directions. And um, you're not totally sure, is today your birthday? Is it not? You don't know. And all of a sudden, boom! And in the split moment, that microsecond of time, just right after that boom, we don't know whether that boom was going to, is uh, going to destroy us or it's going to celebrate us. That's what he said. We don't know if it's going to destroy us or it's going to celebrate us. So he, he um, another analogy he had for this was the cosmic sneeze. The cosmic sneeze. So that it's not so much relevant whether the Big Bang happened how many gazillion years ago, but that actually the cosmic sneeze happens moment after moment after moment after moment. If it's another example he gave is if it's really hot outside and you're parched with thirst and someone comes along with an ice cold beverage and the minute before you take a sip of that beverage, there's this moment of not knowing what's going to happen. Is that going to satisfy my thirst? Is it going to be what I'm looking for? I don't know. I don't know. After an actual sneeze, there's a moment where it's just, it's almost like surprise, like, I, I, I'm here. People talk about the moment of orgasm, right after orgasm, that same, right? Shakespeare said it's, it's a little mini death because it's the moment of, it's not even an I am at that point. There's no I to be something. He also really beautifully called this the primordial dot. 
because he said in that, in, as you look out, as you raise the gaze and you look out across the horizon and everything's just there, there's this little, there's this little space of kind of tenderness. And our very humanity, our very capacity to feel and to feel happy and to feel sad and to react and all those things, it's born in that dot. It arises out of that space. That's not a space that we can figure out logically. It's not a space that someone has an explanation for, right? There's no one that can explain how that came to be. And yet we are so utterly human in that moment. It's 100% truthful how we are in that moment. There's no deception. You know, it's like the springtime. Is anybody wondering if spring is actually going to come? So we just get, continually, we're just getting bombarded with cold and wet and potential for snow and all the rest of that. And so they're, they're, the, it, it, this happens in life, right? You see the analogy that these things keep happening. And we actually have this, we begin to wonder, like, is, the, is a seed going to Germany? Is something going to happen there that... Um, feels like my life can move forward out of everything that I've been through, everything that I've been subjected to. And so in this context, right, meditation um, and mindfulness is, it's about trusting without suspicion that that little, that little moment of germination, the little moment where some form of kind of wakefulness and being alive and looking up and having a bigger perspective is relating to them. And that's why this space and this container is so important because it's not easy to do on our own. So we create a space, we come together, and each one of us there's this yearning that we have to connect with that aspect of our humanity. That's why we came here. If I was to make a gigantic assumption about why all of you came here, which of course I can't do, so I can just do it for myself. That's why I come and I come back and I come back because I've felt that moment, whether it's on the cushion or whether it's just... Um, being with another human being and being in that vulnerable position of sharing something that's deeply meaningful to me and waiting to see what the reaction is. Do you know that feeling? What are, th what are they going to say? How are they going to react? I've kind of put my heart on the line, and I don't know what's going to happen. And that moment is 100% genuine. It's very tender. 
It's very human. And that's why I'm making this assumption that that's what we want to connect to, that that's what we're hoping that this practice and yearning for this practice and being with other people will help connect us to. Because what we're tremendously, I don't know about you, but what I'm very, very familiar with is the doubt that rushes in. So after that moment, the cosmic sneeze, so, so often what happens is that because we don't necessarily trust that very um, tender space of just being ourselves, however we feel, the doubt rushes in and the um, calcification of that doubt, when that doubt kind of hardens, it begins to look like anxiety. It begins to look like um, doubting ourselves, denigrating ourselves. It begins to look like judging other people and making assumptions like I'm doing tonight. It begins to look like uh, blowing ourselves up, arrogance. All come out of doubting that moment. So while this practice is so much about um, very slowly and easily, breath by breath, trusting that, that moment right after, that moment of now, so now and then the moment is right there. So we're trusting ourselves in that moment. The, the actual, because we can't create a cosmic sneeze, can any of you sneeze on demand? That would be really, so no one here can sneeze on, I can't. But because we can't sneeze on demand, because we can't manufacture these primordial dot moments where we have that, that oh, oh, aha, like we're awake, the, a lot of the work of meditation is to uh, be able to relate to that doubt. You know, the doubt that I can't do this. I can't even string three breaths together. Or the doubt that, you know, I'm, uh, am I getting anywhere in my job? Or the doubt that this, is this the right relationship for me? How we sort of welcome in that doubt and almost put it in this, um, this space, holding it in this space of, of, of love, really, you know, of, of accepting it in, accepting that that's what we're struggling with, and being able to infuse it with a kind of kindness or friendliness. That's the work of meditation. Every time we come back to the breath, that's why I said, when you have that moment of noticing that you're away from the breath, that's a moment to be very gentle with ourselves, to not judge ourselves that we're doing a bad job, but kind of say, okay, you're totally scattered tonight. Come on back to the breath. Because one of the things that Chogim Trumpa said, and this to me is mind-blowing, he said it doesn't even matter whether, you do, whether you're doing it right or you're not. That's why this is not about mindfulness as like a um, particular skill that any of us is going to master. It doesn't matter whether you're doing it right or you're not.
it doesn't matter whether you're doing it right or I'm doing it wrong. Trungpa Rinpoche used to say, well, meditation, it's very earthy. It's like his 70s lingo that he used. It's very earthy. It's very ordinary. There's no stakes for it. It's not going to, um, it's not going to be a magic fix. But it's going to be honest. It's going to be 100% honest if you actually try to do the technique of coming back to the breath. And in that space of honesty is forged this trust of ourselves. That's where we forge. We do the, the ironsmithing of forging this trust with our own humanity that we can actually trust ourselves is only by going into that space, that space of honesty where there's not judgment about whether we're doing it right or wrong and we're relating to that yearning to just be ourselves with no bullshit. And then actually to be able to do that with other human beings. Simultaneously cosmic and super down to earth. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, <clears throat> what do you think? And, and are you even preempting your question? If you're a little confused, there's some other people that are really confused right now, okay. <laughs> including myself, so go ahead. All right. Um, I'm a little confused about um, what you were saying about doubt because um, uh, I guess there are like real-world consequences to our actions, and so if we're uncertain about making a decision or a relationship like you had mentioned. Um, I think, you know, part of that doubt comes from the actual consequences that can happen from that. So, um, how do you, how do you um, uh, meet the doubt with um, like compassion that you're talking about mm -hmm. and still acknowledge that it's not like there's n nothing bad can happen? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think I think to, to one in one way, what you're pointing to is the idea of that that or my one way that I'm going to interpret what you're saying, particularly the, the latter half of what you're saying, is that their uh, mindfulness sometimes 
the modern connotation of it or the contemporary connotation of it is that nothing bad will happen. And like if you do it, and in fact the, the converse, you, all these good things could happen. And then every once in a while you read an article or someone will come out with some research that says this could actually be not good for you. It's, it's rare, but it does, ha those of us who are nerds about this stuff and we pay attention to all the press that comes out, we, you know, that, that occasionally is the case. And, and actually, they're just picking up on what, I mean, because I think you said it earlier, like, what if I do just sit here with my mind, by myself particularly? What could actually really happen? And there's a little bit of a worry that that could go off. So I think that, you know, you're, in terms of raising this question around like doubt and how do we relate to doubt and how does the practice help us to do that, one of the ways that I'm trying to present tonight is the larger context of this idea that um, because we are human, we, we doubt. You know, that, 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 that uh, because we particularly because we don't trust ourselves enough. Maybe there's moments that you trust yourself or there's moments that I trust myself. But because that so easily slips away, do you know that feeling of feeling like, okay, I've got this, but then it just turns into, no, I don't got this? We're not trying to eradicate that, actually. We're not trying to get to a situation where we don't have doubts. And partly because of what you're saying, that within, um, layered into the doubt is critical intelligence, is our ability to assess a situation and make a skillful choice. But that, what happens that is that usually that's so wrapped up in our like fixations and our habitual tendencies and our neuroses and all that stuff, that we might get to mine that critical intelligence, but meanwhile, we've kind of created a mess otherwise with our doubt. It just paralyzes. I know for me, it par it's paralyzing. You know, it's that feeling of like, I don't know what to do next because I'm so overcome by doubt. That's when the doubt has completely surpassed the critical intelligence. So in the peaceful abiding practice, in the meditation practice, when we are coming back to the breath over and over again, we are um, somehow making friends with the fact that we get paralyzed and that we fixate on stuff. And so rather than just wishing that that wouldn't happen, we say, okay, it happened again, let me come back to the breath. And then we all of a sudden, we're fixating on what we're gonna say to that person and we say, okay, I'm fixating on that. I might have some good things to t tell them, but actually I'm just spending my time figuring out how to talk to them and introduce it to them, because I'm so scared of saying it. So this much critical intelligence, this much fear. So the practice brings us back, okay, come back to the breath. Come back to that moment where I might find a little glimpse of that post-cosmic sneeze, like, I'm just here, I'm just here. It's not even I'm here, it's just here, here here, and slowly the, what we notice is that fear diminishes a little bit and the critical intelligence of the, the, what we have that's intelligent can come forward. 
but we almost have to look away from it in order to make a relationship to it. Does it, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. You said it doesn't matter if we're doing it wrong, meditating. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if we're doing it wrong. And then you said, but I can't remember exactly what you said. There's still the technique. There's, There's instructions on how to do it. So what does it mean to not matter if we're doing it wrong? I guess for me, it has to, comes down to an intention. What is your intention? If your intention is to work with your mind with this technique, then after that, no matter what happens, if, 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 that, if you come back to that intention, then it was a good session. But we do have to be honest with ourselves because if we sit down on the cushion and we just use the whole time to space out or to think, but our intention was to work with our minds and um, relate to our own humanity and relate to the present moment, then we haven't lived up to our intention. So in the doing it wrong, um, lots of things can happen, right? Uh, there's lots of ways in which we can go away from the present moment. Um, there's lots of ways that we can give ourselves a hard time. But those things are all secondary to that basic intention that we're, we want to, um, yeah, like I said before, connect to our humanity, connect to our mind, learn about our minds. It's a, it's a very quizzical, I, you know, I didn't say it, <laughs> no. But it, I resonate a lot with it because it is, there's, a, there's a kind of conundrum there. What does, that, what does that actually mean to, it's almost like another paradox, to there are specific instructions and the instruction is to come back to the breath, but there's no way you can do that wrong as long as you're somewhat aligned with your intention. And intentions are not right or wrong, they just are what they are. Like I wouldn't, I'm not gonna go around and say, well, that's a good intention, that's not a good intention, that's a good intention, you know? If your intention is to sit down and relax and just get a chance to just breathe and think, that's perfectly fine. Some of us did that tonight in my cushion. But if your intention is actually really to learn about your life and your mind and your heart and all the rest of that, then um, it's not that you're doing a good or bad job at that. It's just you're, you're tracking towards that intention or you're not. Thanks. It's a good question. Keep thinking about it. My intention right now is to get attention. Okay. <laughs> like what I said earlier okay. about getting attention. Um, I was wondering, because you said a couple of things. You talked about the Big Bang, which I thought was interesting. You talked about science. So the Big Bang, most people don't know about it, but it implies that we were all connected at one point because it was an infinitely small point. And then boom, all this happened. So that implies that we were all connected because it was too small for us not to be connected. We were all there, right? Because we're here. So, um, And then you said something about purpose. 
your purpose is your purpose, right? It doesn't really matter. And I think about doubt, like, what's the point? I mean, I mean, doubt gets you further, probably, but I don't think you should live with doubt, right? Well, I mean, you know, part of me I want to say, show me someone who doesn't have any doubt. And I'll be an enlightened being, right? <laughs> I, I, I've but, never met anyone. I just know everyone who I've met is on the path who works with doubt, and you know, in order to fulfill purpose. I, I don't know if you can fulfill a purpose without doubt, without encountering doubt and that's, working with that's it. That's probably true because um, they say, like, if there's no struggle, there's no progress, like Frederick Douglass said. Yeah. And that's pretty true because it catapults you to a higher level. That's right. So it's, I guess it's necessary in this world. But I think anybody could live without doubt if they get to that point. Possible. Yeah. Possible. But, you know, uh, until we kind of arrive back all together in that infinitesimal point, um, we're we're all on this journey together, mm. and each in our own each in our, at our own place on it, and um, and I think we are all still connected. I think even though the Big Bang happened, it didn't mean that we became separated. Separate, right. Do you know what I mean? Which yeah. is I think in in what you're saying, right. very very true, very wise. Yeah. Thank you. Feel free to hang out, mingle, stay, mix however you want. But this is kind of the the end of the program part of it and just the opportunity for you all to um, enjoy each other. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming and I hope you have a n nice rest of your night. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, David Parent. Thank you all for listening to the podcast. Thanks for telling your friends about it. We like it when that happens. Visit our website, inmy.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Again, David Perrin is leading our introductory meditation weekend, the weekend of May 4th. It's called Shambhala Training Weekend 1. Click the link on the homepage. Email us at podcast at Your questions, comments, suggestions, whatever you got. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, come to our weekly Dharma gathering. It's every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. Thanks for listening. Later. <laughs>